everybody. Welcome to What Does the Bible Say About That? In this episode, Will and I are going to discuss church history, but we're going to be looking at it from the Bible's perspective. Um, you might be surprised to know that the Bible talks about the history of the church, both in its time in which it was being written, but also in a prophetic way about what would happen. So we're primarily going to be looking at the seven epistles in Revelation 2 and 3. So get your Bibles out. I hope you guys enjoy. Will, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? Don't tell me. Hold on. Don't tell me. Hold on. Let me see. Hang on. Hang on one second. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing okay. It's Saturday. Can't complain. We're recording this on Saturday, at least. It won't be Saturday, probably, when people listen to it. But, yeah. Yeah. Can't complain. Doing well. Good. Hey, what, what's the answer yeah. to that question? Uh, well, the world may never know. Really. Mm. Um, but, yeah. I'm no, that's okay. That. Do you not remember that commercial no, growing I up? No, I do. I was just trying to, you know, I, I uh, thought about impersonating the owl and, and just yeah. doing that. But then I was like, I'm going to feel really bad about myself if I do that later. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just thought it would be a good yeah. segue in, in the answer because the world may never know. But you know what the world could know? <laughs> what? what the Bible says about church history. Wow. What a Boom. transition. This is Boom. amazing. There you go. There you and go. We didn't plan that. Yeah. Okay. We so didn't plan that. We, yeah. We didn't. <laughs> we definitely, I think they know that. Well, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah okay we're going to talk about church history today um but from the angle of what does the bible say about that Mm -hmm. and so i don't when you were growing up did you think the bible said anything about church history honestly i didn't even think church history was a thing i no one even even told me anything about church history (laughs) honestly didn't even care about it all all, actually the most (laughs) church history i knew is that i had family Mm -hmm. That donated the land where the um, church building that I attended uh, was. Mm. That was the only history I knew. And I knew that my church wow. or the church I grew up at was 100 years old. Wow. Yeah. So that's my history. So you just kind of thought that the, the Baptist church had existed for 2,000 years. And <laughs> yeah. The... yeah. Honestly, I didn't. Even, yeah. I was just like, I didn't even know I was Baptist, I don't think. <laughs> well, I think that's good. That's probably good. Thing. Yeah, that's probably good. Thing. Yeah. Well, okay. What about you? <laughs> yeah. No, I think um, I, I I did. I would. I wasn't really interested in church history. I guess at also until like maybe maybe like college time was when I got interested in it. Before that, I was kind of ignorant too. Yeah. Just like, yeah, I know there's like these Catholics out there, but but they're they're whack. Yeah. You know. So yeah. that's. That was just kind of my thoughts. Like they do weird right. stuff. And so I don't know about that. You know, actually, actually I had a friend who was Catholic. Um, I okay. met him in my, my last year of high school at a job I was working at. He was an, he was an older yeah. guy. And he told me, he told me he didn't understand why people couldn't be Catholic because all of the traditions and rituals and things that they did and, and like, because they were so old and historical made him feel close yeah. to God. 
And I think mm, that's kind of almost what sparked my interest in like, I guess Christianity is really old. Yeah. And, and there sure. have been things that people have done for years. And it's like, why don't we talk about it? Why, why hasn't anyone ever taught me that, that we have mm-hmm. such a, a history of Christians mm-hmm. that apparently have, I mean, if we've been around since, <laughs> since Jesus, that's 2000 years of history to study. Yeah. Yeah, and we do, you know, we devote sure. like years in school to study American history. It's only been around for like <laughs> 300 years, you know, I mean, I guess it is yeah. our heritage, but. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I, you know, there's, everyone has their church history. Like you get into it. Everyone has their, their roots and, um, you know, you might have the view that like, if, well, the, my church or my you know, denomination or whatever has been around for this long, or it's had, you know, these things have developed, even if you're like Catholic and you say, well, this has been around since the beginning. I mean, that's their claim. It's not true, but it's like, this is the oldest. And so it's the most authoritative. Um, It's really easy to have your own spin and perspective on history. I mean, everybody that that goes with all types of history, right? It's who's telling the story, basically. Um, Like I was in Rome actually, this last year. Um, and I, I visited, you know, Vatican city and I, um, toured a lot of kind of, you know, what there is to tour mm-hmm. there, I guess. And, um, uh, I, I noticed there were so many like, um, obelisks, you know, like the Egyptian tower thing, the pointy tower. No, wait, what, what is um, that? Um, obelisk, I, I believe is how you pronounce oh, I don't it. I don't know what that is. It's like the big, like it, oh like what's that washington dc oh, like the washington okay, monument it. okay it's like that um they were egyptian though they'd been brought over to rome and they all had a cross on top of them and interesting and their view of history is you know i might look at that and say well that's mm-hmm. pagan because it's literally a, a a thing that is used to worship the you know the egyptian god iris it's like like there's there's calligraphy on there that describes the egyptian gods but their view is well christianity has conquered the egyptian religions and so there's a cross on top of that and it's like the conquering of that religion is their view of it um interesting anyways that is really side note but my point is like history is all about who's telling the story yeah um and so thankfully the bible actually gives its own perspective on church history and so we don't have to listen to one view or the other. We can go to the scriptures and it actually has a lot more to say than you would think about describing all the history of the church and, and of Christendom in general. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about too, just the overall view of um, the history in the Bible, like especially in the old Testament, because I don't know if you get much of history in it throughout the new Testament. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I guess acts in a, in a way is like recording what happened. Uh, True. Right. But, but in the old Testament, it's like, there's always these reflections on what happened and what God did. And maybe mm-hmm. it was just something that was really rich in the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture. Uh, uh-huh. I don't know, yeah. but it was, it is something that is like brought up again and again of what God has done and what the children of Israel had to pass through and like what it means. Um, yeah. And so I do. Yeah. For I think sure. there is ground, especially just for, just for history in general. Yeah. 
No, I think I think so. Yeah, because like, yeah, the Bible's full, chock full of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can say that the Gospels are a history of the man Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. And Acts is the history of the the birth of the church and kind of its development across Asia Minor and, and Europe. Um, but it, yeah, it, there's even even besides that, there's also um, the Bible speaks prophetically about the how church history will unfold really. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's good also to look at the old Testament too, because it, it speaks to it as well. Um, I'm not even sure where to start. We can maybe just look at, I'll just look at this. I was thinking about acts 20 um, where Paul is, he's about to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be um, probably imprisoned. He, he kind of knows that bonds await yeah. him. And so he's kind of, opening up his heart to the elders in Ephesus um, of like what you need to do. Here's like my final words to mm-hmm. you. And then, so in Acts 20 verse 29, he speaks prophetically. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverted things to draw away the disciples after them. Um, and so he, he definitely has a negative view of like what's coming, yeah. you know, it's like things aren't going to be great. And by the time he's in prison, actually, um, you can see this in Second Timothy, which is his last epistle. He's writing in prison um, verse or chapter one, verse 15. It's like, I know that, you know, it's he says all who are in Asia have turned away from me already. Like, like all of Asia right. Minor has turned away from Paul's ministry. Yeah. And in chapter three, he says, you know, there were, or chapter four, I think chapter four, he's like, there will be a time that'll come. So it's like, Hey, even the fact that they've abandoned me, this still isn't the worst. There's a time coming when they won't even tolerate the healthy teaching, but according to their own lusts, they will keep up to themselves. Teachers having itching ears. Um, and so anyways, Paul definitely has a dismal view of what's mm-hmm. coming basically after he dies. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. yeah, that's a good place to start. Also, I'm just curious on what you think about this. Um, but do you think, and this is all speculation, I think, but in, you know, in First Corinthians ten six, he says he, he's referring to what the Israelites passed through, especially coming out of Egypt. Mm. And he said, now these things occurred as examples to us that we should not be ones who lust after evil things, even as they also lusted. Um, mm. And then he lists, yeah. you know, what happens. But do you think right. he? I, I I honestly do think this that he's looking at the Old Testament and what the Israelites passed through as a, as a type and a symbol and I mean what does he say as an example, of what the church also is going to go through. Like he he just knew it mm. intrinsically. Like God saved the people and he called them for a specific purpose to do something, and they start turning yeah. away slowly. In, in a way, they're degrading. They start falling away from what he wants from them yeah no i think that's a that's a great point yeah because like most people recognize the history of the children of israel as a a a type a great type actually um verse 11 of that same chapter it's like now these things happen to them as an example they were written for our admonition so it wasn't written for a having a good record of history it was written specifically so that we could be admonished by their example. Um, but yeah, it, it serves as a type because, right, we're the real Israel according to the Galatians 6. And so 
and we can look to them and see our history actually um that's that's really clear from the early history of them right it's like they were enslaved in egypt but they were they had the passover lamb put right true to save yeah. them from death from hell um first Corinthians five it's like christ is the passover lamb um they crossed the red sea first corinthians 10 like clearly that's a type they built the tabernacle that's clearly a type of the church mm-hmm. right and of christ um and then they built the temple and so we are the temple of god according to first corinthians three and six so i think that's a great point but yeah what you're saying it's like it actually it, it's really more expansive than that and it touches on the history after the church because what happened to the children of Israel come, you know, 50 years after the temple's built is they start to bring in idolatrous yeah, right. things. They start to go after other gods. They serve, they might even be serving God in an improper way, right? Like the tribe of Dan, they set up the high places um, and they're worshiping Jehovah, but not the way he commanded them to. Yeah. And eventually what happened is they were judged and they were carried off into captivity in, in Babylon. Um, and, you know, we're not, we're not so, I, I think we have enough ground already to say that clearly as a type of the church, <laughs> right. given the first Corinthians 10 verses, but actually revelation talks to this, how God's own people are, will be carried away into yeah. Babylon, right? In revelation 17 and 18, Babylon comes up again. And he says, come out of her, my people. I think it's 18.4. Um, and so clearly this is symbolic of what's going to unfold in church history or what has yeah. unfolded yeah. in church history. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's probably as good as we can do, you know, to, to <laughs> but, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, cause it, we don't just have to speculate in that sense and then start talking about church history because um, thankfully, you know, there's a, there's these seven epistles mm-hmm. in Revelation chapters two and three, um, which which actually are, they really tell the story of church history um, in full or how we should view it, I guess. Um, they give a lot more details about what's going to happen to the church, how it's going to unfold. Um, and really kind of it's for our admonition again, like what 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 am I to do? Where am I to be in this? story that's right. unraveling i guess yeah. um so i guess should we go ahead and hop into the seven churches is there anything else you wanted to say there no i think that's good yeah i think let's hop in i mean i, yeah. I the main thing i wanted to point out is this is you know paul warns the church and the and the followers of jesus um that this is actually christ himself speaking of what's gonna what what that's right what is currently happening and what is going to happen Right. Right. Yeah. And so when you, when we come to the seven churches um, in Revelation, I, I guess first off, like most Christians, I don't know about how, how did you feel about the book of Revelation as a, as a book growing up, I guess. Did you, did you read it a lot? Was it kind of a, the first one you'd flip to um, when you're growing up? No, I, I actually thought it was Revelation <laughs> with an S on the end oh. of it. Yeah, I did. Goodness. I did. I, I remember distinctly when I got corrected on that by regardless. It's okay. Um, they did you a great, they great did. There's only one revelation. Me. There's not multiple. The only one. Um, that's right. And so, yeah, so I thought it was revelations. <laughs> I thought it was weird. Um, 
something that I, I was actually, yeah. I think, taught like, well, no one can really understand it. And I think that was somewhat of a protection yeah. to, to fall into it, you know, maybe a, a misinterpreted understanding or misconceptions about it. But mm-hmm. it also is mm-hmm. kind of um, paralyzing to, too. I mean, like you, you don't, you won't get into anything if you think, well, there's not an interpretation and no one has it right. So why would I read it? <laughs> right, right. No, that's, that's a great point. I, there's this verse actually that I'm, it just came to mind when you said that, because whoever told you that I'm sure they missed <laughs> yeah. really well, but, but there's this verse in revelation chapter one, verse three. So you don't have to get far <laughs> into it before you get to this verse. <laughs> it says, it says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things written in it for the time is near. And so actually this is the only book in the Bible that comes with a, a promised blessing for yeah. just reading it. It's like, if you would just read this, you'd be wow. blessed, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, I think for sure it's a, it's a different kind of book than the other, how many books are there? 66. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's definitely unique. I mean, I guess Daniel is pretty yeah. similar, yeah. right? But um, Daniel's got a lot of cool passages that, allow you to get through the, the weird stuff easier. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's like this book is, it is a blessed book and we need to read it if we want to totally. receive a blessing. Um, and we need to read it again and again and again so that we can understand it. Uh, you know, there, people get afraid because it's like full of these weird symbols and, you know, there's dragons and harlots and bears, oh my, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, but <laughs> This, this book is, it interprets itself for the most part. It, it'll literally tell you like what means what pretty, pretty explicitly. Like, on, I'm thinking of one, um, I think it's at the end of chapter one. Yeah, he says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw upon my right hand, which were like 10 verses earlier, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are right. the seven churches. And so it's like, okay, I just saw these weird lampstands and stars. What am I supposed to do with that? And it's like, well, just keep reading and he'll explain it. You know, it's like, so I just encourage anyone who's listening to this, like just read Revelation and read it a lot and you'll get a better grasp of it as you continue to read it, you know? For sure. Yeah. But I'm sorry, we're talking about seven churches. Um, So the seven churches in Revelation two and three, um, it's really interesting like that these seven churches got epistles directly from right. the Lord. Cause, cause there's, there's more than like, seven, like at the, at the time there's more than seven churches, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, Rome didn't get a letter. Jerusalem right. didn't get a letter, you know, Galatia or the churches in Galatia. None of those churches got a letter. Like, and, and you know, it, it is to the seven churches in Asia minor, right? So it's, Mm-hmm. which are in Asia. Um, but there's, there's prominent churches in Asia that didn't get a church, a letter as well. Like the church in Colossae, like they got an epistle from Paul, but they can't get a letter like right, right here. But I, you know, I, I haven't even heard of Smyrna, but they get right. one like, and, and then the other thing you could say, well, these churches clearly have some problems. And so they mm-hmm. needed a letter. But actually, two of the seven seem to be faultless. Yeah. 
that no problem is addressed, no rebuke is rendered. It's like, why waste an epistle yeah. on that church? Mm-hmm. You know, like Colossae like, is struggling with Judaistic like Gnosticism right now. Like why, you know, I think they could use a couple more encouraging right. words, you know, and, and, but it's really, yeah. And where, where is Rome at this point? Has, has the, no, not Rome. I'm sorry. Has the temple been destroyed at this point? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. So you can get into to dating it, I guess. But most, I think most people would agree that Rome or uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed okay. by now. There's like a there's a minority that believes this was written before the destruction of Rome, but uh, it's pretty clear that it, it was written after the destruction, probably around the the 90s, uh, yeah. early 90s, N- not the 1990s, but. The, the original 90s. No, yeah, so, it, just, I, yeah. it just seems like, you know, also why would the Lord address it if he was going to write epistles, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And so um, we can answer the question given a few factors. So why, like, why did they get epistles? Um, first off, there's seven of them. And, and that seven, you know, I don't know how everybody feels about numerology and and kind of the study of numbers in the bible and a lot of people kind of abuse this and they'll say you know they find all sorts of hidden meanings in numbers that were never intended um but you know if you're a diligent bible student and if you want to see the deeper meanings and the truth you have to at least know certain basics of numerology and, and and the significance of numbers in the bible um because I mean, they they tell they tell a story, and so with seven, it's very clear um, throughout the Book of Revelation and, and across the whole Bible that seven is a number for completion, um, and like completion of dispensation. It's like this this is kind of like the fullness of that or the completeness of that. Um, you can look at creation, yeah. right? It was created in seven days. Clearly, um, throughout Revelation, there's the seven bowls, the um, you know, there's the seven lampstands, obviously, um, that I can't get into it all right now. I also don't remember all of it, but I've studied it at different points and there's like tons and tons of the number seven, right. In, um, the Bible, but it, it represents completion. And so in these seven churches, we actually see that they are representative of the complete church or of the entirety of the church. Right. Like in time, in time, right. Yeah. Throughout time. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly they were historical churches and we're not taking away the historical value from it. But um, when you align up these seven churches with the unfolding of church history, you find that actually it, they align perfectly. They have a, it's, it tells the same mm-hmm. story, basically. Um, and so we can see in these seven epistles how the whole of church history is going to unfold, what it's going to look like before the Lord comes back. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is this is a view that um, it's not it's not we're not coming up with this. Um, it's not our view, but it's also something that wasn't around really early on. And that makes sense because they're actually in the early stages, you can say, of the unfolding of church history. So it makes sense that they wouldn't see this all. But, you know, ever since at least the 1800s, um, a lot of people have started to see, oh, wow, this is really 
matching up to what I'm mm-hmm. seeing in church history. Um, so maybe, I, maybe we should hop into it because I'm sure like we need to prove it because that's, that's a bold claim, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but No, yeah. I, I would even say too, like this is a very um, bold topic that we're going to get into and yeah. we're not going to pull any punches. And, you know, if you do disagree <laughs> yeah. or have questions, then please, you know, please feel free to give us any feedback. But we also would encourage you to diligently read the book of Revelation, prayerfully study it, and um, get some study materials on it. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think, uh, I don't know if you've read Miller's Church History, Will, but that's a great resource to really get into this in more depth. Because, yeah, we can't really touch every point in a short podcast but we'll try our best to hit the major ones yep. i suppose um so um what, how should we do this should we should we dive in deep with each one should we gloss over all of them quickly and then go back what do you think <laughs> good question um i mean i you know something i kind of like the idea of is is summarizing each one um and then if later okay. on there are questions about it or people want to know more about it, then we could get into it. Yeah, cool. I think that'd be good. That'd be good. So the first church is the church in Ephesus. Um, I think we should go ahead and say this now. With all of the seven churches, there's there's a lot of rich meaning, even just in the name of the church mm-hmm. and what the name means. Um, so with Ephesus, uh, you know, in the Greek, it means desirable. It's a desirable church. Um, then when you come to Smyrna, it, Smyrna literally means myrrh or flowing myrrh. Um, and then come to Pergamus and Pergamus means high fortified tower or marriage. Um, and Thyatira, you have a sacrifice or an unceasing sacrifice, and then with Sardis, you have the restoration is what it literally means in the Greek. Philadelphia it means brotherly love in the Greek. Um, and then Laodicea means the judgment or right. opinion of the people. Um, so these are all super significant for what they mean um, mm-hmm. as it regards to church history. Um, so with Ephesus, uh, which is the first church that he addresses, it's the desirable church. Um, and so you know, they, they're they still doing great. They've got uh, a lot of great works and labor and endurance. Um, it says that they're not, uh, they hate the works of the Nicolaitans at this point. But the striking feature with this church is that they have left their first love. Right. They've left their first love. Um, so the, the, the verse says, but I have this one thing against you that you've left your first love. But actually, there's no one thing in the actual Greek. It, it literally is saying, I have against you, or I am against you, that you've left your first love. And so the Lord is starting to like, he, right. he's rebuking them for leaving mm-hmm. their first love. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, no, yeah, yeah, I, I guess ahead. just um, historically, this would be what around, around the time that John died. Like when, when the church, yeah, if we're looking at I it from so. a historical point of view, like the apostles at this point are gone mm-hmm. and we're kind of out of this first stage of 
the church being established where the people that were physically with Jesus are now no longer with the church to lead and guide it. Cause I mean, like at that point in time, it's like, who do you, who are you looking to, to in a sense, be an example or be a leader? It'd be like, I can imagine the people that were actually with Jesus. So you're going to listen to John and then now yeah. he's gone and the church enters this phase yeah. of like, I, you know, probably looking for other things instead of diving deep and loving the Lord. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's exactly it. It's like they're the fervency that uh, defined the original church, the kind of Pentecostal spirit of sorts, you can say, don't think I'm talking about Pentecostal denominations. I mean like the real Pentecost, Um, like that's, that's starting to wane. They're still doing a lot of the outward works. They're, you know, still being great and they're doing all the things they should be doing, but that initial fervency is is starting to wane. They're not um, loving the Lord as the first one and as the best one. Uh, And and this is, you know, it really fleshes out in um, kind of right around the first, the turn of the first century. um, You've got a lot of just kind of dead, cold um, religion developing, um, the start of it. It's like, you know, they're, they're getting a lot more into philosophy. Um, you know, that, that most people would say like the spiritual gifts aren't really mm-hmm. around anymore. They've stopped kind of doing their, their miraculous. Um, and it's just, the church has started to get a little bit more cold, I guess, um, around the, this, the time actually, um, yeah, yeah. the end of the first century, uh, And it's, um, you know, once again, the church in Ephesus is obviously a historical church and they got their own epistle from Paul. Right. So it's not like we're saying this wasn't written to them specifically. They clearly had this problem, but we're saying that this epistle, it kind of characterizes an an age. It's the, um, the main factor. And so all the different characteristics of the seven churches might be in existence at once. You know, there might, you might have a Laodicean spirit in Ephesus, you know, it's like in the age of Ephesus, but the main characteristic of that time is the first love is waning there. Um, the, everything's just starting to die down a little bit. And so what happens right after that? Um, and this is actually, you could say it's a mercy from the Lord is the church then enters into a stage of persecution Mm -hmm. actually. Um, like they'd already been persecuted to some extent, but it wasn't as, um, you know, systematized and, um, coordinated among the entire government of Rome. And so, uh, with the church in Smyrna, which is the next one, you have the suffering church or the persecuted church. Yep. And so Smyrna, like you said, it means, it means myrrh. And so, uh, Myrrh, if you don't know it, it's, it's a, an ointment. It's a, an, uh, this, this oil that you would use a lot of times to anoint dead bodies, to, to preserve dead bodies. Like it was on Jesus's own body in John 19. Um, yeah. After he died. Yeah. And so, um, the church in Smyrna, they're undergoing tribulation, right? It, it says that they, um, they're not to fear. This is verse 10 in chapter two. Uh, should not fear the things you're about to suffer. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison that mm-hmm. you may be tried. 
and you'll have tribulation for 10 days, but be faithful unto the end and I will give you the crown of life. Yeah. And so um, this church, they're, they're the ones that are, um, they're suffering, they're being imprisoned, they're being killed. And the Lord is saying, be emboldened. I'm, I'm the one who has overcome death in verse eight. Um, and so you should be faithful unto the end. And, you know, this is the age of the great martyrdoms of yeah. the, the Christian church. It's like, you've, you know, what does Tertullian say? It's like the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah. Um, I might've butchered that, but it's like, this is when um, they're undergoing mm-hmm. these major persecutions. And, and there's a, there's a um, good book on that, right? You were telling, you were, you referenced. Yeah. Yeah. The right. Fox's uh-huh. book of martyrs. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you get a great account of like all these great triumphant mm-hmm. heroes of the faith, you can say. Um, and it's interesting, actually, it says they'll endure tribulation for 10 days. And when you survey the history of the church there, um, there were 10 main uh, persecutions that the church went under or like 10 emperors that were very fervent in trying to stamp out this right. new religion that was being developed. Um, and so a lot of symbolism in these verses, there's more we can mm-hmm. get into, but I don't know, maybe that should be enough for Smyrna. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is yeah. the, the, the primary persecutor at the time was Rome. Right. And you right. find all kinds of things throughout their history. Um, before the next church we get into mm-hmm. where, they had all kinds of issues with the Christians for a number of reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. So the next church mm-hmm. is Pergamus. Um, and like we said, Pergamus, it, it symbolize or it, the meaning, the Greek word means a fortified tower, or it means um, a, like behold, a, a marriage or a wedding yeah. has taken place. Uh, and, that's pretty clear. Like, I mean, you can see that even if you don't know Greek Pergamus, it's like gamo or gamus. Um, that's the root word for marriage. That's where we get our terms right. like polygamy from. Um, and so something happened with this church where they're no longer being persecuted. They've actually married mm-hmm. the world They're They've been joined to the world. Um, and so, you know, you can actually, see satan's subtle tactics here um in church history what happened is that you know the church started to wane in its love for the lord it was kind of getting a little cold and then the lord just like he did you could say with job or like he did with paul um he kind of allowed satan to right have his way with the church um to persecute and you can say i mean that that might sound awful to you it's like well that's God's people. Like, no, this is not a good thing. But on the other side, it's like, well, actually, this is a purging. This is a, a, a and a purifying is what you'd say. You know, the, God's people are most faithful or most fervent and, um, you know, pure, actually, when they're undergoing tribulation. Wow. Yeah. When, when, when the church is in a great standing, when they're, a, you know, a high tower mm-hmm. in society, right? Um it's just cold and, and it's you, you marriage to the world with like the church, it doesn't 
result in the church being or the world being Christianized. It it results in the church being yeah becoming one with the world and right. being corrupted by the yeah. World. That's what that, I was I was actually thinking about uh, this church specifically too about in, in regards to God's command was if, especially to the children of Israel was to be holy, like that was one of his main things. Right, was that's to, right to be sanctified, to be separated um, from the world. Yeah. And, and like you have examples, yeah. like if you read, if you read in these passages, there's examples of the old Testament of when things happened, when the children of Israel got joined to another group of people and became corrupted and mm. it wasn't a good thing. And like, mm. even the sim- the symbolism of what happened, like you, you know, in the early, early Genesis, you have the tower of Babel where it's like all the people come together and there's mm-hmm. this oneness of humanity. And you would think like, Oh, that's a good thing. But they joined <laughs> yeah. themselves to be higher than God and like the whole story. And then he separates. Wow. Them. But out of that separation comes yeah. a sanctified people that, you know, that he has yeah, chosen. Right. It's like when we go away from that and try again to go into world union, it's opposite of what God wants because mm. the world is fallen and sinful and degraded. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, these verses came to mind. Um, there's several places where you see something like this, but in John 15, um, verse 19, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, yeah. therefore the world hates you. Remember the word which I said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. So, um, and it gets, it goes further. I mean, y'all should read this chapter, but um, yeah, I mean, it sounds great that um, they were joined to the world. It's like, there's no more persecution. And and what we're technically saying here is that when Constantine uh, joined or stopped the persecutions and eventually in 323 he made christianity the official religion of the roman empire that sounds like a great triumph of the cross but in the lord's eyes what that is is you've now become of the world the world now appreciates you and you now think you're higher Mm -hmm. than your master basically that's from the john 15 verses it's like this world persecuted me it hated me and it will hate you also if you keep my word but if you compromise and you join yourself to the world, then the result is not going to be a Christianized world. Right. It's going to be a Christian yeah, exactly. church. I, I, um, and so, yeah. Well, I was just going to say something sorry, else to point out too is the you know as the Lord as the Lord addresses these churches, He says these things says something specific, and He says these things says He who has the sharp That's two-edged right. sword, and. You see that right. in another place in Hebrews where it's talking about the word of God being something that divides our soul mm-hmm. from our spirit, being the thing that divides our natural life from our spiritual life and from our life joined to God. And it's like that's right. He's speaking to a people that aren't divided, you know, that don't that are anyways, just mm-hmm. I'm I'm just reinforcing the point there. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. That's right. He comes to divide. It's interesting that the prior church, like Satan has the sword. And right. He's killing God's people. But in this church, the Lord has the sword, not to kill the, his people, but to divide his people from the world. It's like, you know, it, it's a, 
it's a scary thing for Satan to be attacking you, but it's actually, it should be much more feared to have Satan smile, to have right. his favor in the world, you know? Um, so yeah, this church, they, I mean, we can touch on other points here briefly. Like they dwell where Satan's throne is in verse 13. So they're in the world clearly because Satan's throne is in the world. He's the God of this age in second Corinthians four. He's the yeah. ruler of the world in John 14. Um, the world's in his hand. It's his throne. Um, and then also they have the teaching of Balaam in, in verse 14. And so Balaam, go back and read uh, that section in Numbers, I think, 31 and 25. Um, but he's one who uh, enticed God's people to be joined to other tribes. Uh, like that's what he did. He joined them to the world. Um, but there's actually another side of what happens with Balaam and this relates to verse 15 talking about the Nicolaitans again is he was one who took money from yeah, people yeah, to right. prophesy, yeah. right? Like that's the story. Uh, he's working for money. Right. And with the Nicolaitans, it's this, it's similar in that, um, you know, lots of people have views about what the Nicolaitans believed. It's this heretical group, but they're never really clearly defined, but, um, their, their name in itself has a lot of meaning. It's Nicolaitans. And so Nico, it's like where we get the word Nike from. It means to conquer mm -hmm. or to be victorious, you know, <laughs> go Nike. Um, but in this, in these verses, it's a bad thing because they're conquering who? The Laos or the laity, yeah. the people, the common people. And so actually you have here the development of the clergy laity system or the, the priesthood, um, you know, back in Ephesus, they, they hated the, the uh, right. works of the Nicolaitans. So they were already resisting it, right? They still had their purity. They still took the Lord's word that, you know, don't call anyone teacher. You know, you're all brothers. Um, but by the time we get to Pergamos, not only do they have works of the Nicolaitans, not only are some people starting to dominate, actually they have an, a, an official systematized yeah. teaching of the Nicolaitans, and so here you have the development of the Roman hierarchy in its official creedal form, even though it had already existed for a couple hundred years, um, it was slipping in as a, as a work, right. but now it's an official teaching. Um, and so, yeah, this church obviously is, this is, I mean, the church is getting really bad mm -hmm. here. It's really degrading and it's really starting to, um, it hasn't quite hit rock bottom yet, <laughs> but you know, right. it's not doing so hot. Let's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Should we move I mean, on? Just, to, I guess just to review, what is the time period for, for Pergamos or what is what your estimate? Yeah. So, yeah, in general, it seems like by the time 313 was when Constantine um, kind of stopped the persecution. So you can say that's about when it started. Um, and then we don't really have the stop date. It, it, yeah. it morphs into Thyatira, but we know Thyatira kind of came about mm -hmm. in the late 500s yeah. early or the late sixth century. I um, mean, we'll, we'll talk about why that's the case. So that's kind of, there is a progression here of what these, like they're, mm -hmm. they're morphing yeah. into each other, you can say. Um, so yeah. I guess just getting into the next one where we have Thyatira. Um, what is it? What does Thyatira mm -hmm. mean? So it means like a, a sacrifice, like a, a, a unceasing sacrifice right. or a perfume, um, Kind of like, like yeah. incense offering type thing. Yeah. 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 So with Thyatira, um, I mean, what this is, 
we can get into this maybe later at the significance of like the actual name. Yeah. But okay. I think we have to kind of make our case here. Um, cause this is a little touchy cause this kind of, well, maybe we should just say this. Um, the, the last four churches, they all, um, they all exist until the Lord comes back. And, and we know this because, um, in the first three, it doesn't really talk about the Lord's second mm-hmm. coming. It doesn't talk about it. But in the, the last four, he mentions to each one of them about how he's going to come back. Um, right. They're, they're going to be there when he comes back. And so um, let me just flip to these verses here. So in verse 26, it's he who um, keeps my word until the end. Right. To him, it's, I'll give authority. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, and 25. 25 yeah. You have hold fast until I come. What you have hold fast. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And then in Sardis, um, he talks about, uh, I'll confess his name for my fathers, for the angels. Um, let him who hears, um, let be watchful and establish these things. They're about to die. Um, he talks about, I'm going to come as a thief and you should by no means know at what hour I will come upon you. So he's talking about his coming again to Sardis and, and the same with Philadelphia verse 11 of chapter three, I come quickly. Um, so anyways, these last churches, he's yep. talking about his coming. Um, and so anyways, Thyatira exists yeah. today, we can say. Um, so it might be, this one yeah. might get a little bit more. Yeah, no, no. I think, contra- I think to, to point out too, like the last church, the Lord addresses, um, addresses Pergamos as the two-edged sword. In this one, he's a little mm-hmm. bit different. He's the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet are like shining bronze. Right. And I don't picture right. the Lord that way. <laughs> I mean, like, if someone ever said, what is God like? Or what is Jesus like? I don't think flames in his eyes and bronze feet are a way that I would characterize him or even visualize him. So just that imagery, like, if you were to right. paint that picture, it's like, that doesn't seem that pleasant. That's not a, that's not a lamb. Yeah. It's not the lamb of God yeah. welcoming, you know everyone to come to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And that's actually another <laughs> case for why you should read the book of revelation because yeah. you see new aspects of our Lord. Um, but yeah, he's coming to judge and that's what these, the symbol, the symbols mean eyes like a flame of fire. Clearly those are, are judging eyes. The fire is for judgment. Um, and then his feet are like shining bronze and bronze, if you are familiar with the Bible, bronze is used oftentimes yeah. for as a symbol of judgment. Um, talk about the bronze altar, right? In in the Old Testament, it's it's made of bronze, and that bronze um, came from the rebellion of the sons of Korah mm-hmm. or of Korah and his family. Um, so God is coming to judge Korah, and then he has this altar that judges these sacrifices all the time. It's all bronze. And so um, yeah, he's coming to judge. And it's also interesting that he says he's the son of God. Um, and I guess we can just go ahead and say this here. You know, this, this church, Thyatira, we're, we're going to make the case that it's, yeah. it represents the Roman Catholic church, um, which is an apostate church in the Lord's eyes. Um, and they emphasize that he is the son of Mary. Right. And that he is, you know, she's the mother of God and it's all about Mary. But he's saying, yeah. I am the son of God. Right. 
that's he doesn't say that very often but like that's mm-hmm. his emphasis i'm the son of god and i'm coming to judge um and the prominent point with thyatira i mean, I mean we can talk about this i guess now you know that it meaning full of sacrifice or unceasing sacrifice what characterizes the roman catholic church more than their unceasing yeah. uh masses sure. right um if you're not familiar with what rome does they they don't just eat communion like most protestant churches do they it's actually a sacrifice they're repeating the sacrifice of the cross with each mass it's like a new dying of christ um and so their masses there's their sacrifices that when it's like christ has died once for all according to hebrews but they continue to mean to death even also even their prayers like when i was when i got to visit the vatican also and and go into um different prayer mm-hmm. rooms and things associated with prayer and Mary is, is incense that burns. And just to, I mean, just to be frank, I right. find that That's somewhere right. in the new Testament where the apostles or the new Testament believers are doing that. It's not there. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, how did Thyatira get this way? Well, um, there's this woman that's mentioned in their epistle, the woman Jezebel. Um, Jezebel is an Old Testament character. And uh, it says here she calls herself a prophetess and, it, and teaches and she leads my slaves astray to commit fornication. Um, and so, you know, what's the other great characteristic of the Roman Catholic Church that most Protestants do know is that is they... Um, subvert the authority of the word of God to their own traditions and teachings. And so, um, you know, this woman Jezebel, you could say she's symbolic of the, the apostate church in general or the papal system or the Pope himself. Um, And she is the one leading Mm -hmm. and teaching, not the word of God. She's, she's usurping the authority of the word and the Lord and that's just what Jezebel did in the Old Testament. She took the place of the king. She wrote her own letters in his name. And what was the result? Actually, she caused the people, she caused God's people to die. Right. I mean, she mm-hmm. persecuted God's people in the Old Testament. Um, that was her emphasis. Like they weren't obeying the king or this apostate king. And so she took the lead to murder them. Um, and, you know, just, I guess, yeah, we're already, we already <laughs> crossed the line here. So we might as well just keep going, crossing it. Like, you know, nobody's killed more Christians than the Roman Catholic church. It's like, they are they, like, this woman actually appears again in revelation 17 and 18. Um, there's a lot of the same symbolism. They call her a harlot in both. It's like, she makes both like the world drunk um, in both. And what is she drunk with? Right. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. Mm-hmm. she's been murdering the saints. Um, and so, yeah, God's people have suffered under the tyranny of Rome for millennia. Um, and this is a, an apt type, I suppose, of, of the, the dark ages right. of the Roman Catholic Yeah, and Church, I would even, because um, the, the Nicolaitans aren't mentioned here, right? But, but I would even go mm-hmm. as far to say right. that, that Jezebel is even a further falling from the Nicolaitan system. Because at least it's like the Nicolaitans, mm. maybe they're lording over the people, but, but at least they're somewhat trying to do it mm-hmm. in submission to God. 
Where, whereas Jezebel is like mm. totally mm-hmm. overstepping the position to where now she even has her own teaching. She's doing her own thing um, in a way that yeah. that is over God. Right. I mean, that's what that's what Jezebel did. And you see multiple mm-hmm. places in the Bible where the church is related to the wife of Christ, just as Jezebel was the wife of, I think, Ahab. Um, and she takes the mm-hmm. place of his kingdom. I mean, she oversteps him. You have it in, in Ephesians 5 where the, the church is the bride. Right. In Revelation 19, the church is the bride. And so if the church is taking the place of Jezebel. That's right. You to- if the church is tolerating Jezebel, that means that we're overstepping the Lord. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we're supposed to be headed up by the Lord, mm-hmm. but instead the church is the authority now. And the Lord is, right. is nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. He's only coming to judge, right? Um, and so, yeah, one other striking characteristic is verse tw- 24. They, they know and they teach the, the right. deep things of Satan. That's what it says here. Um, it's, it, that's just amazing to me that it would be that far. But, you know, the things in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church are very mysterious and it's very odd. And I, I don't think there's a more apt term than the deep things of Satan. Like that's how to describe it is. It's not something that's outright sinful and, and bad, like, you know, mm-hmm. in an outward way, in a, in a blatantly sinful way but it's, it's deep and mysterious and, and odd. And that's because it's the subtle workings and kind of the consummation of the enemy's work in the church. He's developed this subtle and evil system that keeps God's right. people from his word yeah, and his I mean, salvation. I, I, uh, just visiting Rome. I mean, I, I guess I would like to, Yeah, I just feel like there should be some balance here that I, I mean, I know a lot of people that are Catholic and they're genuine believers, and I think they are saved mm-hmm. and know Jesus as their personal Savior and don't hold, you know, so hard to all these teachings. But mainly here we're talking about the system of Catholicism and all everything that it represents, you know. And throughout history, right. there's so many <laughs> there's so many examples of this where they're just so off. And the amount of Christians that they've killed, I just think it's mm-hmm. super important to know that it is absolutely wrong in the Lord's eyes. And there are so many things that are wrong with it. And we just need to be people that are, that are devoted to the word of God and devoted to the Lord Jesus and not other things that have just been brought in from the, I don't know, maybe even the goodness quote unquote of man's heart to bring in pagan traditions and whatever. It's like Mm. those things represent the deep things of Satan when we compromise ourselves and our, in our, be, right. us, ourself being holy, it's like, uh, anyways. Okay. <laughs> no, I think that's a good qualifier. It's the system yeah. that we're talking to, not the individuals in it. Um, there's, there can be mm-hmm. dear believers in Thyatira and there were actually like, remember this is also a historical church. It's a church the shining golden lampstand. You know, they, there were believers here, but, right. um, the system yeah it's evil um yeah okay so maybe we should move on um and you know if you're following with this and you're kind of following the history of the church we would say this started around the late um sixth century which is kind of when the papal system officially started you know rome would claim that it's been around since peter but church history objective yeah. church histories would say that's 
BS. You know, it's like they <laughs> there's there's no record of an actual papal authority that has universal control right. like that until the late sixth century. Um, and so the reaction to Thyatira, um, most people could probably guess, well, what's the next thing that happens in church history? Well, mm-hmm. um, it's the Reformation, right? It's Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. Um, and so in Revelation 3, this next church in Sardis, it, it literally means uh, the, the remains or the restoration. Um, and so yeah. it prefigures the Protestant Reformation and kind of what happened there. So um, with this church, they are, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I don't think this so much addresses Martin Luther himself or Peter Zwingli himself, but this has to do with kind of the Protestant church as a whole and what's come out of it. Um, They recovered a lot of great things, right? The justification by faith came about. They rejected a lot of the heresies of Rome. Um, But I think almost anyone could see that at least by the time that the great leaders of the Reformation died, it quickly um, became a cold movement. And, um, you know, the followers were not as faithful as the main people who started it. Um, And actually a lot of the old Romish things Uh, weren't fully, um, you know, lost. Like the, you know, they're no longer the universal kind of Roman Catholic church in the sense like, it's this outward government, but mm-hmm. it was replaced by a state church system. Um, and then, you know, there might not be a, a, an official Roman priesthood, but the clergy lady system is what replaced it with the um, still the ministers and uh, the, the pastors and the bishops that are like mm-hmm. overseeing in a hierarchical way. Um, and so with Sardis, the Lord's word to her is that I know your works, that you have a name that you are living. And so they have a name that they're living. They're Protestant. They have been reformed. They are, they are proper now, right? They have this name that they're living yet. You are dead. Mm -hmm. That's what he says. Yet you're dead. Um, And he says specifically, you know, I have found none of your works completed before my God. And so they've done something good for God. They have done these works for God that are proper, but they didn't go far enough. They, they cast off some of the shackles of Rome, but yeah. they didn't take it all the way through. Um, yeah. And, and this is hard to see in objective church histories because, you know, most people are part of a denomination today who are writing these. And so they, they might not say it as fully as they should, but um, there's a lot of things that remain from Rome in these Protestant churches. And um, even things you could say that Martin Luther or Zwingli saw that they didn't, they weren't faithful to, that they didn't fully see. Like I, th- I know Martin Luther, there's accounts where he, he saw that the church, sh- how it should meet. He saw the ground, like, you know, there's just one church in one city and we should just meet as simply as believers. But, you know, because of the nature of the reformation, he had to get help from the German government and he had to plead to them for protection and for, yeah. you know, like because they have armies, you know, and, and so what happens is that then the state gets involved and the state gets control and 
um, things like infant baptism and state controlled communion, they remain because if the state's not in control of it, then, um, well, if the state's involved, then they want control. And so infant baptism is a huge thing for state control. It's like Mm -hmm. you're baptized and you become a citizen. Yeah. It's like, they're one and the same, you know, if it's believers baptism, then it's, they have no control over it. Um, right. And there's, there's a lot of things yeah. we could talk about, I guess that weren't completed, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think also something yeah. to point out is you, you're growing up in the, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Sardis, so to speak, and I was saved there mm-hmm. and you know, the, whatever. I mean, there, right. there's some, there's some, there is some reforming there. But there are plenty of verses in the Bible that are unexperienced and uh, un- unexplainable because we've stopped. There, we, you know, like especially growing up Baptist, it's like mm. sanctification is a word that um, we know. Maybe it's in the Bible, but we've stopped at at being saved by faith and being submerged with water, and, and it's like. That's it. Your works right. are incomplete. Right. There's more to the truth. We, the Lord wants us to come to the full mm. knowledge, not just part of it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a. That's right. And it, it's like they've taken certain parts from the word, mm-hmm. but they haven't taken the whole word. And actually, when we get to the next church in Philadelphia, their yeah. striking characteristic is they've kept my word. Um, so, yeah, and I think to point out there, like you mentioned um, the Baptist church, it's like, yeah, we do see that this primarily right. characterizes the state churches that came about from the Reformation. But just about everything that sprung from them, um, they, yeah. they went maybe a step further, but they didn't go all the way. Um, you know, at least uh, you could say like the maybe the Anabaptists at the time had like the spirit of Philadelphia in the midst of Sardis. Um Right. There's they, these all exist simultaneously, but there's like one striking characteristic that, you know, totally you say governs yeah, totally. the church history at this time. That's that's Sardis. Um, and so let's do it. Maybe we should to move left. on then to Philadelphia. Oh, um, oh, time period. So I guess two left. We're, oh, well, yeah. Sorry. When, when would that have started? <laughs> OK. Yeah. OK. I think I think maybe 1517. Yeah. That's yeah. the nailing of the 95 theses um maybe take it all the way up to the still going 19th too. century um it's yeah okay yeah cool. and it's still going it goes till the end yeah that's right um so with philadelphia um their philadelphia means brotherly love um and so this church it actually has nothing yeah. wrong with it it's pretty amazing like the lord does not have a rebuke for them um he he actually um, praises them, you could say, um, because they're those that have a little power and they've kept his word and they have not denied his name. And so this group, they are a simple group of Christians. They just love one another. Philadelphia means brotherly love. They just love one another. And they've taken the Lord's yeah. name as their standing, right? They've cast off the shackles or the titles of the denominations who have taken other church leaders names or taken um, a a certain method or uh, 
type of, you know, we can name all sorts, we can name them all like a, you name it by the way you establish your eldership or the way you congregate or the way you baptize. Um, they've rejected all forms and names and they just call themselves brothers. And, you know, they, they just have a little power. They're not praised because they're spiritual giants or they have these great, you know, revivals or Pentecostal movements. Like, it's not like they're just, you know, they're exactly like Pentecost, but they have just a little bit of enduring power Mm -hmm. and they keep the Lord's word. Um, This is kind of what characterizes Philadelphia. I I guess I've just kind of had the pattern of saying how the Lord addresses these people, but um, it says the, these things says the Holy Mm -hmm. one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one will shut the one who shuts and no Mm -hmm. one opens. Um, And to me, the, you know, the key of David is the key to, to the kingdom of Jerusalem. Um, and that's like where all the riches mm-hmm. are of the kingdom. That's where God dwells. And the riches that we have today is the word of God. And the fact that the Lord addresses them as the one who has mm. the key, it's, it's like he, it's like the Lord blessed their yeah. coming out of these systems. Um and bless the fact that they were just right. going to be brothers and not um, um, Lord over each other. And out of that came the opening of the word of God with, with all the riches that it possesses of Christ. Right. That, that, that weren't, I mean, that, that maybe guys, right. you know, guys like Luther and Zwingli and um, Sinzendorf and, and whatever else saw, saw some of these things, but they never were quite, they were they were incomplete until, until, now, this mm-hmm. point, this this um, so who, this who was it? <laughs> well, maybe before you say anything, I mean, this is yeah, this is a controversial close. thing now because now we're like, right? Philadelphia is the ideal church, and mm-hmm. you know everyone wants to be Philadelphia. You can say so, but yeah, I mean, can you start to see? Yeah, this in I mean, history, uh, I guess in how it yeah, it is out? controversial, but um, I, you see this in in. You see this in the Plymouth Brethren. Um, and and I, I would say, you know, you start to see mm. a little bit of it. Like these time periods that we're saying, there are groups of people before, um, before like Luther, for example. There was some people before him that led to his big thesis and his big, you know, breaking out of the Catholic Church. And, and in the same way with the Plymouth Brethren that, right. that occurred in the, you know, early 1800s, mid 1800s. Um, there were there were a group of people before mm-hmm. him that also had this same attitude and mentality of just being brothers. Yeah. It was um, the Moravian brethren or, or Count Zinzendorf that that somewhat started this idea right. of not, it's not an idea, but uh, recovering and reforming the the oneness that the Lord desired so heavily in John 17 and wanted for his people. And and to be one, it means that. Really, we need right. to be brothers and need to see each other as equal members of the body um, that all possess the life of God. And so, sorry. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, officially, we're saying that this is the Plymouth Brethren, a group that um, has its roots in Ireland and England. And um, basically, they, they were people mm-hmm. that either came out of clerical positions in different denominations or they had um, they, they were just very... Yeah. Um, well-educated people. They were lawyers and doctors and, um, you know, whatever else. And, and you, you have this group of people that aren't just 
um, they were somewhat high in society that, that dropped their titles, they dropped their differences, yeah. came together, and the Lord just blessed their, in a way, their, their he started enlivening and using their natural abilities um, to discover the riches and mm. prophecies in the, in the Bible. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's their striking characteristic. And it's itching that most, yeah. I think a lot of Christians haven't heard of them really. Um, I don't know if you had prior, but um, whether you know it or not, if you are a Christian in America, not meeting in a big, like an established state church or denomination, um, if you're like more in a free group, you probably benefited from the brethren and their expositions of the scriptures. Um, a, a large majority of the seminaries today, um, kind of what's kind of the, the dominant theologies that have come out um, stem from the brethren, even though they might not be acknowledged because, you know, the brethren, like we're saying, they were very faithful to the Lord in, in his word and very faithful to speak against right. the established church systems. Um, so they weren't appreciated in that sense because you know, the people who are pastoring and who are in these positions, their jobs are being threatened by these guys. But um, right. what they brought out of the scriptures was greatly appreciated, even though it's not acknowledged. You know, specifically, they really helped to unpack what um, kind of the meaning of um, the dispensations and help to unveil like what the certain prophecies have to do with Christ from the Old Testament and helping to understand uh, Old Testament typology, helping to see, um, you know, yeah, totally. certain things about the spirit and life and our spirit and uh, the church and its universal aspects. And also, you know, our ability to just gather in twos and threes in the Lord's name to have him with us versus needing a priest there or someone who is a quote unquote, yeah. you know, mediator or a um you know someone in between they they really cast off a lot of their restraints and the nicolaitan system in full um and just started meeting as brothers the people call yeah. them the plymouth brethren but they repudiate that mm -hmm. title um they would just call each other brothers and they're they're just right. meeting as an assembly and, and in a lot of ways like together, when i've just you know, briefly looked up you know. different people that were associated with the plymouth brethren at the time um and, and read some of their books mm -hmm. and their articles and whatever, you know, it, it's just so striking and it's just touching. It's like, I, now that I have mm. gotten into this type of um, prophetic interpretation, I guess, of these letters, when I read people that were in the Plymouth Brethren, I just can't help but think they have the key of David. Like when I'm reading, uh, I don't know, C.H. McIntosh or William Blaw or John Darby, it's like, some of the things they bring out, I'm like, man, the Lord really blessed them. Really blessed them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, think Benjamin Newton, think George Mueller. Um, like there's like all the great names you can say around that yeah. time. Like they're, these were meeting as brethren. Like they, they saw it in the word and they just started meeting this way. Um, but there's they're not the last church mentioned unfortunately in um, yeah there's one that follows unfortunately that's right um 
so here, you know, Satan has been exposed. He, um, his system that he's developed, that he's masterfully created, um, you know, consummating in, in the Roman hierarchy. It's like yeah. the shackles have been lifted off. They're, they're free. And so how, how do you corrupt this church? I'm just speaking from the angle of Satan, which is kind of weird. But um, it's like, what can I do with these guys? Because they are, yeah. you know, they figured it out. They're starting to come back to the original way. And what he does is he, he brings about Laodicea. Um, and so Laodicea, um, I think most people know about this. I'd heard about them a lot um, in Christianity because, you know, that's where we get our, right. our the word lukewarm from. Um, that's what the Lord calls them. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold, but I wish you were cold or hot. But because you're a lukewarm, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. And um, this is really striking. It says also, you know, you say that I am wealthy and I've become rich. I have need of nothing. But you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Um, and so with this group um, or with this church, yeah. their characteristic is, is right pride. You can say. Um, maybe at the time it was actual material like wealth and things, but when we're looking at it from the view of church history and kind of seeing this, the typology, mm -hmm. it's, it's clear. It's more, this is more spiritual wealth. They've, they view themselves as rich in their spiritual knowledge and in their understanding of the word. And they've lost their poor spirit as Matthew, or the Lord says in Matthew five, three, and they are proud of what they have. Right. And they've lost yeah. their fervency for the Lord. No, I mean, I was just, yeah. And so, yeah, like, they've, yeah, go that ahead. Is, it's the complete opposite mindset that Paul had when he is writing Philadelphians. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say Philadelphians, but he didn't write to the Philippians. Yeah, to the Philippians <laughs> and to Timothy. It's like, uh, he's not, no. he never, he never stopped running as fast as he could. There was no lukewarmness in Paul. That wasn't right. the, that wasn't the kind of, that just that's right. not the, Lord, the Lord's spirit in us, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. I'm thinking of Second Corinthians twelve as well. It's like Paul had these exceedingly great revelations, and so the Lord sent yeah. a messenger from Satan to um, humble him, right, so he wouldn't get proud. But uh, the Laodiceans didn't get that messenger. They um, started to exalt in what they knew. This was the knowledge that kills. This was the knowledge that's dead. Um, and so, yeah, that, you know, and this is, unfortunately, we can see this pretty clearly with um, kind of what happened with the brethren. Um, they had such a pure and wonderful testimony, but very quickly they degraded and began to mm -hmm. divide amongst themselves because of their different views on, nuanced matters and um you know that what was once the pure just assembling of the brethren became yeah, yeah. hundreds of denominations really and splits uh, maybe they wouldn't actually denominate but dividing nonetheless um and so anyways this is i mean this this is just kind of what happened in history that's you don't hear about the brethren as, as much anymore because they just don't have the same power and influence because they've lost their testimony right. of the oneness and the Lord has spewed them out of his mouth. Uh, that's actually, I would say why we don't know about them. Um, 
but yeah, today, you know, I mean, even also one more thing, it's crazy. The Lord says that I stand at the door and knock to them. And so, um, mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. the Lord's not even in their church. You can say in their doors, um, he's outside and Laodicea just to talk about, you know, we've been mentioning what it means. Um, it means the opinion of the people or the judgment of the people. And so the power has been taken from, um, you know, the hierarchies and right. the, uh, kind of the Jezebel or mm. the priest, but it wasn't given to the Lord or it's no longer in the Lord's hands. It's been given to the masses. Right. This is like the democratic churches, you know? Um, and so, you know, you might think that's great. It's like, Oh yeah, no more hierarchy. It's just our decision, our right. thing, but that's not, that's no better. That's actually worse. Um, the Lord does not have a democratic system. He is a theocracy. And so we need to be under his headship fully and yeah. just keep his name and his word, right? Like the Philadelphians. That was... Well, so what, what do we do with this, Will? What's like... What, I mean, I, yeah, I think... The, yeah. I would, you know, it, this is such a good thing to get into and each one of these could be its own hour-long podcast and message. Um, I think mainly for me it's applicable yeah. because we can all fall into, and you mentioned this earlier, but we can all fall into, in a sense, the spirit of each of these churches personally. Um, and maybe, maybe even the group of right. Christians we're associated with is represents some, some part of these churches. And surely we have experiences of all this, but um, I think definitely it's just warnings. And mm-hmm. I, I would just invite people to really get into them with this mindset prayerfully and, um, and just maybe just go to the Lord and just see what parts of these am I unclear on or what parts of these do I, what category do I fall under? What church am I in? You know? Yeah. I think that's a good point. We should have some self-examining. Um, and, and, you know, like we're, this is obviously a bit controversial and, but it is interesting yeah. like, that it does seem to line up perfectly with church history but yeah the the proper reaction whether you agree with every point we made or not and we encourage you to comment or to let us know so we can have some more you know learning ourselves but um the point is yeah we we should aspire to be philadelphia um aspire to keep god's word faithfully in 100 percent, and to honor his name above all names and you know if you're in a denomination um, yeah. Like, is that right? Is that biblical? You might say, well, you know, I, I don't consider myself a part of their denomination, but I just meet with them. It's like, well, why, why aren't right. you faithful to his word? Why would you compromise in such a way? Like, like we all have to go before the Lord at the judgment mm-hmm. scene. And if you say, well, Lord, I wasn't <laughs> like them, but I was with them. It's like, you know, the Lord, yeah, the Lord, cares for you being faithful to his word, mm-hmm. not so much to just how you feel about it overall. Um, so yeah, we should all do some self-examining and I appreciate that verse in to the church in Ephesus. It's like, yeah. Yeah. remember from where you have fallen and repent. And so go before the Lord and say, Lord, I love you. I want to follow you and obey right. you wholly. Like mm-hmm. where am I short here? That's right. I want to be Philadelphia. everyone listening, we appreciate you. 
Thanks for tuning in again to What Does the Bible Say About That? Church history can be a topic that is intimidating. It can be a topic that's a little bit boring, like, you know, most history. Sorry, all the history buffs, nerds out there. Um, I, I, I do appreciate history, especially church history, because I think it um, is super important to understand where we came from. And in some ways, it helps us see where we're going as believers and and to see what the Lord has done. I mean, that's one of the functions it held in the Old Testament was to reflect on the history of what God had taken the Israelites through. And it was really to strengthen their faith and, and turn them back to God. And I, and I think really for me, it does the same thing looking at church history. And I think Reese would also agree. Um, a, a couple references, or one reference we mentioned, just I want to reiterate, is, is Miller's Church History. It's a, it's a pretty long book, but um, it's worth reading. It's worth reading. He wrote it in about the 1800s. Um, again, it's called Miller's Church History by Andrew Miller. There's another book that we didn't mention, but has, has been a lot of help to us. It's The Orthodoxy of the Church by Watchman Nee. Um, he uses that book to really get into these seven churches to see and interpret how they represent church history. Um, and again, it's it's something that is really important and helpful to see. Um, as always, you can give us some feedback on Instagram. That's kind of our main uh, source of publicity, I suppose. Um, at, at the Bible Podcast is our username. That's also where we're going to be releasing our future content and keep you up to date with, with kind of what we're doing. Next week's episode, or the next time we record, the topic is going to be on the Bible. What does the Bible say about the Bible? We're going to dig into different verses that talk about the Scripture and the Word of God specifically. Um, and it should be fun and interesting. So can't wait to put that out. Um, and also would love to hear any feedback from you guys. So talk soon.